0: Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. From the letter to the Hebrews, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I have a gloriously easy task this morning. That is, addressing the subject of hospitality with a congregation that excels at it. Okay, that's all. (laughs) We have a culture of hospitality at Christ Church, a culture of sharing meals, opening our doors, and even later on today, we will be engaged in a work of hospitality with that pinnacle of church hospitality, the potluck dinner. In the letter to the Hebrews, we read, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The letter to the Hebrews imagines, and rightly so, this world as a sacramental landscape, embracing both the visible and the invisible, to such an extent that, as to understand that we as human beings not only live in a world defined by material realities, but by that which is immaterial as well, a world of angels. The presence of the saints, a great cloud of witnesses, the heavenly Jerusalem being realized on earth in the communion of saints, the worship of the church becoming the sacramental union between these seemingly different and yet co-essential worlds. It is not strange at all when the writer suggests that in the church's ministry of hospitality, even angels have been cared for. Offered food, offered drink. First century Jews believed, for instance, that as they offered the Passover meal, the dead, their ancestors, were right there with them. Some will even go so far, uh, and most people do, leave an empty seat for Elijah. They expect that he'll return, why not at our table? Some will even go so far as to spill a bit of wine on the tablecloth believing that Elijah visits every Passover meal and that he's kind of clumsy. Others have a tradition of saying, once the plate is served, all those who are in need come and eat. You'll remember in Exodus when the commands for the Passover meal are given, the stranger is to be allowed to eat the meal too. By this they are referring not only to the living, those in need of immediate hospitality, but of the dead as well, their ancestors. By continual remembrance of the dead, by continual remembrance of those who sojourned in the wilderness, they participated in a world that is best described by that Greek word anamnesis, a world of knowing again what perhaps otherwise would have been lost. This is the very word that Jesus uses when he says, do this in remembrance of me. For ancient Christians, their understanding of the church's liturgy is thick with an understanding that not only the dead, but the company of angels attend the liturgy. We, of course, do the same, only we have forgotten it. When we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name, we really do mean it. We join the heavenly host in perpetual adoration of Jesus, participating in their praises, and they in ours. For the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, it would be folly to imagine this to be the case in the church's worship, but not in the home, not in the domestic church. The liturgical life of the church was not sequestered at that point in houses of worship, but was still bound up in the life of the home. If you imagine some of those New Testament authors writing from the middle of a gigantic church, uh, well, I like that, but it's not true. There was no separation. The Christian's meal of fellowship or of koinonia was bound up in the church's sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, the Eucharist. The truth here should be rather apparent. The writer is reminding his audience that it is not only with hospitality offered to angels that we should be concerned, but hospitality to the stranger. In the liturgical life of the church, which I again note extends to every facet of domestic life, the stranger is introduced to the sacramental realities of Christian believing, which are at the heart of the gospel. In the church's life, it is the stranger, the humble one, The one lacking in status in the community who is given pride of place. The gospel, in a very real way, flips social convention on its head. We, of course, see this in today's gospel reading. Jesus is observing a meal at which he is offered hospitality by a ruler of the Pharisees. What does he observe? Well, this jockeying for position, yes? They're all saying, well, that's going to be my seat, and that's going to be your seat, and that's going to be your seat. I don't know if you've ever had a large dinner party at your home, but the same thing happens uh, for us. We're saying, who's going to sit where? But in those days, much more was bound up in one's status regarding where they sat. His words to the host cut to the heart of this reordering which the gospel demands. Essentially, the advice is this, reject the place of honor. Take the lowest place so that you may become an object of honor, not taking it for yourself, but having it bestowed upon you by the great host. Of course, Jesus does that himself, does he not? Then there is this final bit of counsel directed directly to his Pharisee host. When you give a feast, he says, invite the poor the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is a rather scandalous statement, by the way. Pharisees would never invite the poor and the maimed to their meals. They were afraid they might contaminate their dinner table. They were afraid they might make a mess of things. And furthermore, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the just. So let me get... Or they did, but just in a different way. Let me get to the meat of it. Jesus Christ, who has emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Jesus, who penetrates this world with his presence, taking on human flesh, has lowered himself to offer hospitality of heavenly kind, to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we may also be. And he has invited not only those and, well, not even those who are perfect or who need no salvation, but sinners with no status in the heavenly realm. He has set a feast and invited the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind to come. In essence, the way of hospitality which Jesus shows us is that of a humble offering, a self-emptying way of inviting others into his divine life. And when you and I offer even the humblest of hospitality to others, we do this very thing. We invite others to share in our life. And because that life is shot through with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are inviting others into the divine life. Jesus goes so far as to say that even the one who offers a cup of water in hospitality will by no means lose his reward. This is replete throughout Scripture. In the epistle of James, we read the following, an upbraiding of the church to image forth the kingdom and not the realm of worldly status. James writes, "'My brethren, show no partiality "'as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'the King of glory. "'For if a man with gold rings "'and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, "'and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, "'and you pay attention to the one "'who wears the fine clothing,' And say, have a seat here, please. Well, you say to the poor man, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Part of the issues today is that, for many evangelical Christians since probably the Reagan era, Christian cultural dominance in the form of the religious right has been inextricable from a way of status and worldly wealth. The moral majority was also the party of financial independence and fiscal conservatism, the party of the BMW. Indeed, one can even see how support for certain candidates by the rural poor today represents the last vestiges of this conservative demand for upward mobility. On the other end of the spectrum, progressives fail to see how progressive social policy leaves a wake of destruction, especially for the poor. Where the elite can, ab- can absorb revolutionary social change, the poor cannot. One is left wondering if either perspective or either party actually proposes social change but in truth presents us with just another iteration of the status quo. Well, I raise all of that, and please excuse the political uh, dabbling a bit, because we struggle to see how the gospel could be presenting us with a way of material and financial contentment, and above that, generosity, which is not ancillary, but rather tied up in the gospel of salvation. We leave matters of wealth in one category and matters of faith in the other. And Jesus is saying it can't be this way. He's telling his wealthy Pharisee host, invite the poor and the maimed and the lamed to come to your feast. I would submit to you that in this current time of political chaos, the church is being invited to discern ways that can be far more holistic, given to works of charity and hospitality, especially to the poor and the stranger, which we see as essential to the work of evangelism, while simultaneously being internally critically repentant of the ways in which we ourselves have participated in an unholy pursuit of status and wealth. What I propose this morning is, in truth, nothing new, but a traditional way of building a culture of faith. Chartering a life for the church that initiates the stranger, the poor, and the outcast into a life of Of kingdom status and not only the poor and the maimed and the outcast but with those disillusioned with the pursuits of modern life initiating them as well into the communion of faith the church a way if you will of evangelical hospitality denying our own stuff denying our own possessions, denying even our own dinner table and our own homes, and offering them to those who seek out the life of God. The Anglican priest and academic, Tori Balcom, has written a book by this very title, Evangelical Hospitality, and I want to share with you some insights from that text. He decides that in talking about evangelical hospitality, one must speak of three parts of a distinct culture of hospitality for the church and the home to have. And he gives three R's. They are ritual, rhetoric, and roles. All three needed for hospitality to be exercised. By ritual, Balcom means those repeated and habitual actions which serve as gracious open doors into the divine life, threshold events into the realm of love. I'm going to read that to you again. That ritual serves as gracious open doors into the divine life, threshold events into the realm of love. Well, you can certainly see how that's the case here, but it can also be the case in your home. Certainly the literature we are offering now is part of this opening a threshold of divine love, but it cannot be the whole of it. Domestic liturgies of offering visitors and strangers something to drink, offering a consoling embrace, a nice place to sit and relax, all of these are rituals which serve in much the same way, opening the doors of the divine life simply by opening our homes and sharing meals. In the rule of St. Benedict, Benedict says that the stranger is to be welcomed as Christ. Imagine that if every visitor you had to your home felt like they were being treated as Jesus. By these rituals of hospitality, we show outwardly how we have been welcomed by Christ himself as objects of divine love and not of scorn. He asks us to reflect this love by inviting, yes, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind of being unpaid in return, but repaid in the resurrection. That is that domestic ritual of hospitality. And you know it. You know it well. Think about what it feels like to make a bed for a guest. What it feels like when you're pulling just that glass of water. What it feels like to pour wine for a guest. All of it is wonderfully mindful of that call. Next is rhetoric. Rhetoric, in this sense, refers to how words create worlds of meaning. We like the ancient church occupy a world in search of meaning, a world which is not even sure there is meaning. Becoming a part of the church's culture of faith means not only beginning to act like a Christian, but beginning to talk like a Christian, with a new vocabulary, a new way of speaking. That's often why the words of the liturgy seem to be beyond us. They're actually enculturating us into a way of speaking. To do otherwise is to shroud the Christian believing, a Christian believing behind the banalities of contemporary idiom, where it becomes both tamed and neutered. But the Christian faith is not tamed and neutered. You know, Aslan, he's not a tame lion, so why would his liturgy be tame? At the same time, we have to be intentional about speaking in empathy and care for the stranger, the one who has not yet believed. Imagine a dinner party that you throw with strangers, in which there is no conversation at all, or worse, just mere small talk. St. Francis has often been falsely accused of saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. He never said that. He never said it at all. In fact, I think he would think that was a rather stupid thing to say. By all accounts, he was a fantastic preacher and utilized all manner of rhetoric in the proclamation of the gospel. There is a strange idea afloat today that the proclamation of the gospel is not all that important in the church's work, that it should pass into the background a bit or away entirely and should be supplanted by a mere social work. Well, that is not Christian hospitality Christian hospitality has a content. Words. The church cannot, especially in the face of considerable social opposition, be reduced to an NGO or a secularized charity. There is a content to Christian hospitality, a way of speaking. Well, lastly, a bit about roles. You may have, at some points in your life, thrown some kind of dinner party. And uh, if if I think if you do it right, you say, let's give the guests something to do, like chop vegetables or cut the bread or open up the oven and put some things into it. It's a wonderful way of honoring guests. We see in this gospel reading that a a particular emphasis is placed upon roles. We see the role of the host, the guest, and the stranger. In a Jewish way of eating, everyone has a role. Everyone has a part to play. What is perhaps a revolution here is that each is seen as having their own gifts. And by Jesus, even the poor are invited to exercise a role in the meal, even the lame, even the outcast. In the divine household of the church, all gifts are properly gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are given so that the church may do the works of Christ on earth. We can often default to a crude kind of utilitarianism, when it comes to spiritual gifts. By saying, oh no, we have someone to cover that. We don't need you. Or by saying, oh, we're getting that done. He doesn't like it, she doesn't like doing it, but we're getting it done. We need someone to cover this ministry or that, and so we look for the gifts we need, especially in newcomers. In some churches, I know it's often joked that everyone new through the doors is offered a chance to teach Sunday school that they must have the gift of teaching. After all, we need Sunday school teachers. No, the understanding here is that a plurality of gifts given to the church for the good and health of the whole body. In short, everyone must have a role, and everyone must be given a way to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. Of course, some of these roles will be official. Here we have a ministry team with various heads of each ministry, and each member of that team has built a team to serve in various ways. I want to encourage you strongly to take on a role in this church, in this congregation's life, to consider how hospitality may be exercised in it. But that's not the whole of it. The flourishing of spiritual gifts within various roles in the church requires that even if one is without an official role, we understand that every member does, in fact, have a role to play. That includes children. It includes the elderly. I remember being part of a congregation that every Good Friday served a meal at a homeless shelter. And one of the most inspiring parts of it was that children were invited to skip school on that day. That school district had school on Good Friday. They would skip school, and they would come and be a part of serving the meal. Some children as young as four asking homeless people at the Union Gospel Mission, What would you like to drink? It was a regular reminder that in the economy of the church, even the most dependent of all participate in the church's work of hospitality and are given the gifts necessary to do it. So don't think for one second you're not essential to that work of hospitality. You absolutely are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.